0: will reward you. I'm going to turn our attention to this text. We're in the midst of asking our Lord to give us personal, individual renewal, but also community renewal. And I mean that primarily about our community of EP. Obviously, I mean more than that, but I, we're asking the Lord at least to renew us as a community. Our text this morning is part of what has been traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. It runs from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. I'm sure Jesus didn't walk around or his disciples didn't walk around and say, Hey, you remember Jesus gave that Sermon on the Mount? But it's become synonymous with that particular long teaching. In fact, it's one of Jesus' longest teachings about the kingdom of God. And so we're looking at that and the point of this uh, uh, three verses, it's part of a larger section where he starts off and says, when you pray, when you give, and when you fast, the point that he's trying to make is that we are not uh, to parade our religion in front of others in order that they might think highly of us. The context of this immediate context is our personal relationship with God and our public relationship with one another. And so he he begins to talk about these three aspects of devotion. Praying, giving, and fasting. We're looking at one of the three because all three, though the subject matter praying, giving, and, and a fasting are three different things, he says the same thing about all three. So in order to Prepare us for what we're going to talk about. Let me ask you uh, two questions for you to be thinking about as we walk through. And the first is, what distracts us or keeps us uh, from a meaningful relationship with God? When you sit there and you're thinking through, why don't you spend more time? Why don't I spend more time with God? What's the answer to that question? I'm sure it's our busy schedules, but specifically, what are we busy with? And therefore, why don't we spend more time? I heard a story uh, a couple of weeks ago about a pastor who received a drawing. And you know how kids will do this. They'll sit down and they'll, they'll, they'll do a family portrait on a, a piece of paper and color it. And this particular A piece of paper that she gave her parents, she's about eight years old, had mom and dad and she was in the middle and both parents were holding her hand, one on the left, one on the right. Mom was holding her hand and looking down at her, her face was toward the child and the child's face was toward her mom. But then there's dad, dad's holding her hand, but in his other hand is his smartphone I think that says a lot about their family, at least about their family dynamics. And I think you could paint that picture of me. And I'm wondering if you could paint that picture about many of us. In fact, often some will say, I'm always present, I'm very faithful to be there, but I'm not always present that is, I've got other things. My wife will say, I'm not very good at uh, doing two things at one time, but I am a multitasker. That is, I rarely sit in a meeting and don't have something else to do. When you think about my smartphone, it's the last thing I look at at night, and it's the first thing I look at in the morning. And and I intentionally, this is the only exception that I can remember that I've brought my smartphone here is I leave it in my drawer in my office because I might check it, even while I'm preaching. <laughs> you know, it, when you think about social media, when you think about what we do in our communication, the design for social media, and when you're thinking of what he's talking about, I'm talking about uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat, and it goes on and on and on. Texting, all of that was designed to make us better connected with one another. To, to be apart, but still be together. That was its intent. But sociologists are beginning to notice that there's increase in loneliness. In fact, I read this week that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom has appointed a new cabinet office. Minister of Loneliness. Think about it. It has risen so much in one particular culture. They recognize it. And so can you imagine your title being Minister of Loneliness. And there's an increase of depression and an increase of suicide. And there's just an increase of people feeling unconnected. All the while, we are more connected than we have ever been. I don't think... Those two truths, those two observations are not unrelated. I think they are. I think that the fact that we are experiencing more loneliness, more depression, more separation, at the very same time we are better connected than we've ever been, at least electronically, are not unrelated. Well... Adam Alters, he's a, a professor at NYU. He did a, a study on the Silicon Valley in California. If you don't know what's in the Silicon Valley, I know most people at EP do because you're science and, and, and math oriented. It is the place where a lot of this technology comes from that are in your pockets or in your purses or in your jackets. The vast majority of the executives of these companies, refuse to let their children have digital devices. Isn't that interesting? The very thing that they are responsible for creating in our country, they don't even allow their children to have. In fact, my uh, daughter knows of a school in the San Francisco Bay Area that allows no technology in the classroom. They don't even have overheads, and that's from the 1980s. 75% of the parents who have children in that school are executives in the Silicon Valley. Isn't that interesting? That's, That's similar to Hall of Fame NFL football players not allowing their children to play football. That's how similar those two realities are. I think that's important to notice. But please don't hear me. I'm not. I'm not trying to create a message of get rid of your digital devices. Because the internet and this digital device that is in my pocket, it's not evil. In fact, it's not good nor evil. It's neutral. It can be used for good and evil. We know that. But in of itself, it's morally neutral. And so don't hear me say that we'll be collecting those devices in the back. <laughs> kind of like the old days where we... Y'all, I, I wasn't a Christian back when they did this. Burned our LPs. If you don't know what those are, ask your parents. <laughs> this morning, our text is going to answer this question. What could we lose if we failed to pursue God? God. With all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our mind, and all of our will. What could we possibly lose if we don't pursue God? Well, I'll give you up front. I think there are at least four things this passage reveals to us that we can lose. We can lose our honesty. We can lose community. I think we can lose intimacy. And I think we lose freedom. First, honesty. The core issue in Matthew 6 is inauthenticity. This idea that we are supposed to be living integrated, integrity lives, that we are supposed to be what we present to be. Because what's going on in this text are these. Pharisees that he's calling hypocrites who are opposing, they are pretending, they are acting like they're something that they're not. Look at verse 16. "When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. You can almost picture that when you're fasting, if you really fast, I'm not talking about you skipped a meal. But, I mean, the fasting in their day, it was at least 24. And in many cases, it was many days that they would fast. And so you, you can begin to look a little tired. Because one of the things that we get from food is energy. And so they wanted to look like they had been fasting. And so they disfigured this idea of not that they cut themselves, but they would... They would put this idea of, of dirt on their faces as if they had spent their whole day with their face in the ground before the Lord. And they wanted everybody to see that. And then verse 17 says, Instead, wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but only by your Father who is in secret. You see, these Pharisees were merely posers and actors. They were They were trying to say that all of life is a stage and my religion is my costume. And so the Lord is saying in this text, first he starts with prayer and then giving and then then fasting, he's saying the same thing, that when you do those things, do it so only God sees. That is, they flaunted their devotion and they hid their sin. And the gospel calls us to do the very opposite. Not that we flaunt our sin, but that we confess our sin to one another. That is, we're not trying to hide it. We're actually bringing it in into the light so that it can be dealt with. Not judged. Not shamed. But finally, healing and forgiveness because it's before everyone. You can imagine on, on Sunday morning, and if if part of our service is that Isaac comes up here and says, "Okay, this week this section is going to confess their sins, and then these sections are just going to tell you the Lord forgives you." Well, that Sunday, this one would be empty, except for those that that either are our spiritual giants or at least want to appear to be our spiritual giants. And that would probably be a couple of people. And then everybody else would squish over here. Because we want to keep that kind of thing hidden. And the gospel says, don't, don't hide your sin. Confess it. But if you're going to hide anything, hide your devotion. But Bruce, what about that verse? There's a verse in the Bible that says... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give your Father who is in heaven. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen to what he's asking you to demonstrate before the world. Not your devotion, not your acts of devotion, but the fruit of your devotion. Do you hear what he's saying? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Your good works are the fruit of your relationship with the Lord. It does not cause the relationship with the Lord. It is the result of a relationship with the Lord. In fact, Jesus will say, The world will know you, my disciples, by your love for one another, which is a fruit of loving Him. If we love Him with all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind, then we will love one another. Because it's a fruit. And that's what he's saying here is is that they reversed it. They wanted everybody to see the fruit of their devotion and hide their sin so that people would think highly of them. That they're the spiritual giants. In fact, I do believe that if the Pharisees were in the room, if they existed today as an office, who would we elect to that office? But people who hid their sin well, and people who demonstrated the the, the acts of devotion—that's how we would have to evaluate it, or would have evaluated, because that's exactly what they did. The motivation is the problem here. They wanted to be thought of as spiritual giants. They weren't really devoted to God. Donna Freitas, who's a Notre Dame sociological professor, she wrote this in an article. She said, Social media is creating a drive to appear perfect at any cost. A drive to look perfectly happy all the time. Young people, and sorry if you're young, I don't don't mean she's accusing you, it's an observation she's making as a sociologist. Young people are more concerned with appearing happy than when really being happy. Social media turns us all into micro-celebrities, poised to crumble under the constant evaluation of strangers. I love that line. Crumbling under the constant evaluation of strangers as we manage our personal brand. And therefore, Facebook and Twitter are the anti-confession. Because it's not revealing the real you, just the perfected you. There are places where we can pretend that we have it all together. There's a song that that Brad Paisley sings and it's called Online. And he has this one line that is in the song that goes, I am so much cooler online. Doesn't that sound like us? We are so much cooler in the in the image of the Facebook world than the reality in which we live. Andre Agassi, if you don't remember, and you can YouTube it, he did these Canon commercials. And in the Canon commercial, it always had this tagline that uh, image is everything. Well, a lot of people don't know, or at least a lot of people didn't read, Andre Agassiz wrote an autobiography called Open. And it's a book about his life, and he said this in his book because it's a very different story than the canon commercials told. He says, I always hated tennis. Can you imagine that? A guy that successful in tennis said, I always hated tennis. Everybody thought of me as the happiest, most positive person. That was his persona. That was his PR people. But my reality was as far from that image as one can get. What he's saying is that our reputations don't always match up with reality. The loss of honesty is one of the risks we run when we don't run after God. But the sad thing is it's not the only risk we run. We also run the, li- the risk of losing community. Look at verse 16 again. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. They were praying, they were giving, they were fasting. Those are things that in our evangelical world have great value in. Nobody's saying, don't pray, don't give, don't fast. We too have great value in those devotions. But they were doing it for the wrong reason. They were saying, Look how good I am. That is, they're literally managing their images. They are editing and revising and perfecting themselves just as we do online. Their profiles, our profiles, have become our costumes. This is what a 10th grader, and show you that 10th graders often have more wisdom than people my age this is what this 10th grader wrote it will often take a teenager an entire 30 minutes to edit a single image so as to look perfect in the eyes of the, the viewers online 30 minutes that is they're not just posting pictures they've taken when we, strain, when we teenagers look at our phones, there are inherently presumed levels of competition. People on the other side of the screen become our rivals. Do I dress as well as they do? Am I a better singer than they? Are they a better athlete? Do they have more friends than me? Do I measure up? Is my performance good enough? Now, most of us would never admit that outside of the digital media. Because we don't want anyone to think that's the way we think. All that teenager is doing is what the Pharisees did in Luke 18. In Luke 18... The Pharisee said, thank you, God, that I am not like other people, like robbers and evildoers and tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I make. Look at my costume. And I am so glad this is just a teenage problem. We adults, this is not our problem. We never have costumes for other people to see. If you believe that. I have uh, a number of face group groups that I'm part of. Some of them are super large. But one of the things I've noticed about this one Facebook group of about 1,900 people... Is that somebody will put something very pithy, very, um, very arresting and profound. And then the next person either critiques it or tries to say something more profound. And if you've ever seen how Facebook puts things, they keep, they try to keep the conversation that is launched in line. So you can literally follow it in a logical, temporal order. That is, you can literally see people trying to one-up one another, spiritually. I have another group, and I really like this group. It's only got about 25 church planters, and they asked about a month ago if I would join them. They didn't like this big group. They wanted to do something very different, and so they asked, and they called me old. (laughs) Then they asked, would I be in it? (laughs) Old where my girls are gone. Because if you ask my girls, is Pop's old? They say, no, G-Daddy is old. That's Kathy's father. (laughs) So that makes me feel good. I don't know who's taught them that, but I appreciate it. But this other face group they have designated certain days for certain conversations. They have creative Monday where you're putting ideas. These are church planners who are trying to figure out how to reach communities in which they live. What what idea are you trying and, and, and that we could all learn from. Then they have uh, Testify Tuesday. What is God blessing? Is is someone coming to Christ or someone growing in grace? They tell. They call that Testify Tuesday. And then and then Wednesday's called uh, Rant Wednesday. Something you don't like going on in your life or in the community or in your church. You just rant. And then the best day is called Confession Thursday. Where you confess a sin. What I love is not the confessions. They're incredibly honest and heartbreaking of some of the things that have happened to these people. But it's all of the people rallying around them and trying to encourage them and to remind them of the gospel. I don't experience that in any other Facebook community that I'm part of. Don't you get tired of all of the posing and faking that seems to be required in our culture? And now I'm not talking about the culture out there. And you would say, we don't require that. When was the last time you confessed your sins? That you felt it was safe here to say you struggle? with depression or anxiety or your marriage or your children or whatever it might be. I get so tired of of the image that I create. It's not of you. It's of me. If we can't be real with one another... We become voyeurs of community. And a voyeur is a watcher without the reality of participation in community. And we tend, in our world, think of voyeurism as something that is negative. And I think that's right in this context. We were never meant to be voyeurs of real Christ-centered community. We were meant to be wholehearted participants in that kind of community because we need it. We were built for it. It is how we are designed as human beings to flourish. It's true. In a Christ-centered community, we can be both known... And loved. We don't have to settle for images and posing. But that requires that we expose ourselves in the right way. There's one really beautiful aspect of addictive uh, therapy that I really like. If you've ever been part of a 12 step program, if you've ever been in a community, they start out this way. Hi. I'm Bruce, I really, really am a person who struggles with anxiety and depression. Hi, I'm Bruce. I'm deeply insecure. Please hear my confession as an invitation. To come and to taste the grace and the kindness and the forgiveness and the healing that God has for you. But the prerequisite for that kind of community is that we embody the gospel toward one another. That we extend the same grace that you have given me toward one another. Because a loss of community is just one of the terrible risks that we lose when we don't pursue God with our whole heart. But there is another loss, and that is intimacy. Verse 18, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What's the reward? You ever thought about that? When he talks about rewards, we want to go to that mansion. I'm going to get this big mansion. And, and, and he talked about some jewelry that I'm going to get. The reward for pursuing God with everything we've got is Himself. He's not merely the giver of reward, He's the substance of the reward. We know that. Those of you who grew up Presbyterian, you've been catechized, and this question is given to you What's the chief end of man? You ever thought about what it means, a chief end? We tend to think of destination as part of being in the 21st century. But that's not what the divines, the original writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith had in mind when they said the end of man, the chief end of man. When they thought of chief end, they thought of purpose, design, wholeness, what the Jews used to call shalom. This idea that we are going toward perfection. And perfection is designed by our purpose and design. And our purpose and design, according to the first shorter catechism question, is to in, to what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. None of that sounds like jewelry. None of that sounds like a mansion in the sky. God is the chief end of man. What I'm talking about is Intimacy. When we don't run hard after Him like He runs after us, we lose intimacy with Him. And that's why it's not a waste of time with Jesus. Because He's the end of all of our prayers. He's the end of all of our Bible reading. He's the end of all of our giving. He's the end of all of our fasting. You know, we're, we're, we're right at when I'm supposed to stop. But I have this concern. Can you hear this one concern? I have this one concern. And it's huge concern, or it's growing. And that has to do with the Internet's pornography. It's something that really, really hurts intimacy. Not just with us, but even with God in this way. Let me give you this warning, parents. If you have a 10 or 11 or 12-year-old and you don't feel the freedom to have this kind of conversation with them, you have already lost. Because if you have given them a smartphone, access to the Internet, they have probably already been exposed. It's an epidemic in our culture and in our church. And it has scandalized the human soul. I just read just this week that there's one site, if this is not that uncommon, but one pornographic site alone, recorded since its inception, 4.6 billion hits. That means visits. And if you want to do the math... Six billion people in the, country, in the world. They spend, we spend, America spends, the world spends more on pornography than the NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NBA combined. It is the new national pastime. And the bottom line is it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And we know it's a problem. We know its effects on intimacy. And yet, we go on pretending, I don't have a problem with this. Or, I've got it under control. If we had it under control, there wouldn't be a site that had 4.6 billion hits. Remember, pretending reduces our need for the gospel. And the very power we need for change. You and I, what can we do? We can create a safe space here for people who are struggling with this to come forward without judgment or stigma in order to get help. It's the Pharisees who wanted everyone to believe they had it all together. The church knows no one has it all together. the reason it destroys intimacy is because it fills you with shame. And when you feel shameful, you withdraw. And it's also true with guilt. Just this last little point that I want to make. And it's this idea of freedom. Polishing my image, managing my profile is the opposite of the gospel. Confessing weaknesses and our need for Christ is is real freedom. And hiding our sin is pretending a kind of bondage to be something we're not. That's what he says in verse 18. Your Father in heaven sees you in secret. There's nothing we're doing. There's nothing we're thinking. There's nothing we're feeling he doesn't already know. And on one hand, that is terrifying but on the other hand, it's freeing because we know He knows and He still loves us. Father in heaven knows what you did last night when everybody had gone to bed and what you had visited and He still loves you. He still forgives you and He still wants to help you change. Because we are loved to the uttermost, we are free. The world says control the narrative, manage your brand, image is everything, deny and hide the worst. But Jesus says confess your sins. And God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness because we are clean. You don't feel clean, you feel shame. It's because you feel that way. It's not because of reality. God has washed you clean. And shame on us if we make anyone feel ashamed of their struggle. Let me just end with this. There are two trees in the Bible. One tree begins in Genesis 2. It's called a tree of life. And God says the only way for you to have life is to eat of the fruit of that tree. We know that's true because it shows up again in Revelation. After everything old is passed away and everything is made new, that tree is still there. And we are able to eat of it every day and have life. But the only way we can taste that fruit is if someone eats of the tree of death. The other tree. In the garden That is called Golgotha, the place of the dead. Where Jesus Christ climbed a tree that was meant for us and he ate the fruit in totality. He left no fruit on the tree for us to eat. That's why verse 18 says, you, plural, He's talking about the community, the grace I give you, we are to tell one another. So that we can create this community, this climate of addictive therapy, where we know everyone here is drunk on something, can come and confess their addiction to sin. And because we can confess our sins, we can be healed. God, our Father, is the safe place, and the church is His safe place. There's no pressure here to perform or to pretend because He has not required us to perform and to pretend for Him. Our text says, when you fast, He assumes you will fast. Just like He says, when you, when you pray and when you give. It's an act Of self-denial. We have made way too much of skipping meals and fasting. That's not what fasting is about. It's about you making space in your heart. It's me about making space in my heart for God. And that might be giving up for a while social media that may have nothing to do with food. Jesus is right. Man cannot live by bread alone. But man cannot also live by likes and follows and tweets. He must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful people who you gathered here to hear from you. Anything that is part of this message that wasn't intended by you, I pray that they forget it before this song is done. But everything that you intend for them to know and to believe and to act on, I pray that it burns into the soul, just like this world has burned into our soul, that images everything. Pretend, pose, wear your costume. I pray that, that that your brand burns over that brand and it is removed. That people know that this is a safe place to confess our sins, to be forgiven, and to live in freedom and intimacy and community and in integrity because of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.